My father would pull into a gas station to get gas. At age five and age seven, age eight, my sister and I would jump out of the car and say, we have to go to the bathroom. My parents would grab us and say, you can't go to the bathroom here. Go into the field. I said, Mom, why? why? There's a bathroom there. It says men's. I said, honey, it says wife's only. I'm J.B. Wogan from Mathematica, and welcome back to On the Evidence, a show that examines what we know about today's most urgent challenges and how we can make progress in addressing them. In early June, as communities across the country organized protests against racism, Mathematica released a statement denouncing social injustice and affirming that black lives matter. Today's episode is about how the events in late May and early June prompted two lifelong friends, one of which is our CEO, to talk about race in ways they hadn't before. My guests for this episode are Paul Decker and Chris Williams. Paul is the president and CEO of Mathematica. Chris is the chief of ophthalmology at Crozier Chester Medical Center in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. He's also the founder of On Pace Plus. Since you can't see them, it bears mentioning that Paul is white, Chris is black. They grew up together in Jacksonville, Illinois. One of the common threads I've noticed in public conversations about the intersection between policy research and racism is that our personal experiences shape our worldviews and inform the manner in which we exercise our curiosities. And so it's valuable for people who work at places like Mathematica to reflect on our backgrounds and how they may influence the research we pursue, the questions we ask, the conclusions we draw, and the manner in which we convey those conclusions. The conversation you're about to hear is directly relevant to the larger effort of gathering the best possible information on complex social challenges like racism. It's also relevant to this podcast's larger ambition to make progress in addressing those kinds of challenges. As you'll hear, Chris and Paul believe that the path forward for this country requires empathy, candor, difficult, sometimes uncomfortable conversations, and personal relationships like the one they share. In this episode, I'll be taking a step back. Paul will be interviewing Chris. Chris will be interviewing Paul. You won't hear my voice again until the conversation is over. We start with Chris describing the moment when he received a text message from Paul, checking in on him after the death of George Floyd and the national dialogue that Floyd's death spurred. So it's a very interesting moment because I just want to share I'm an eye surgeon and one of the things that I've learned is on my surgical day, I may do anywhere from 20 to, uh, I've done up to 50 surgeries in a day. The only way for me to get to the end of the day is to just put on my game face and grind through the rigors of every surgery, really not letting anything in my life penetrate that, that space. So here I am June 1st, I have 15 to 20 cataract surgeries in front of me. I'm grinding through them every 
every eight to 10 minutes, I complete a surgery and on to the next. And just by chance, I hear a text uh, come into my phone. So I happened to check my phone and lo and behold, it was from my dear friend, Paul. And it, it had just a few words and the words were Chris, how are you doing? Are you okay? It was, it was just a surreal moment because here I am trying to focus on a task at hand. The world outside is in chaos. There are people protesting. There are, a man has lost his life at the hands of one police officer, not every police officer, simply one. And we had the opportunity to witness it. And then what we each did with it after that was very different. I had a surgical day. I stuffed it down. I stuffed all my concerns of the rioting. I stuffed it down and back to work. And these few words from Paul, I'm in gown, gloves, mask, my nurses preparing and waiting for me. They so penetrated this shield that I had, that I had to rush out into the hall so that my staff wouldn't see the tears in my eyes. Because I wasn't okay. I, I wasn't okay. I was bleeding inside. I was suffocating. And yet I had to go on. It took me about five minutes in the hall to, um, to think, wow, Paul's not like me. He may not understand all those things that are going on, but he had the love in his heart, the understanding of the situation to reach out and say, Chris, are you okay? It was those words that really opened the floodgate for me to begin to really step into this African-American surgeon, but it could have been me. It could have been me. So thank you, Paul. And, and I'm, I love you so much. I'm so thankful for you. But I really want to turn the question around to you. Were you okay? Yeah, I, to be honest, I, I don't think I was okay. And I don't want to presume that I was feeling the same emotions as, as you or as any other, or, or as any other black American. But it, I still wasn't okay. I felt intensive frustration, anger and really disappointment as I reflected on the events 
that were happening at the time and what they revealed about just the kind of risks that you've talked about and the concern that it was revealing a lack of progress in terms of racial justice and racial relations. I, to be honest, I thought we were further along in that arc. We've been at this for a long time. You know, Chris, you and I are, are two veterans. We're, uh, uh, on the verge of turning 60. Uh, we've got a lot of time to reflect back on. And you asked my concern about you. I reached out to you. I think our relationship and what I know about your, uh, your life is a good example of the kind of thing that I thought about differently based on those events. You know, I thought you described being an eye surgeon, Chris, you've got a high level of education, you've got social standing. And, you know, I thought that might have translated into being, uh, for you personally, being a bit exempt from some of those concerns. And, you know, everything I would see on the surface in terms of seeing you interact with your friends, other acquaintances that we encounter all played into that, you know, having easygoing interactions with people of all races, uh, all different descriptions. But the events indicated that I was fooling myself mm. a little bit in that regard that, you know, you and I have always openly talked about race, but it wasn't like we avoided the topic but we talked about it at a level that uh, probably hid some of the uglier parts of uh, racial tensions. And so it leads me to think about what can we do to fix this or to speed it up? And that's the frustration of, you know, we talk about the Martin Luther King quote, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. Mm. But it's not bending very quickly if we're relying on the evidence that we saw before us in the last several weeks. And then it also plays into how can I help at Mathematica both help the organization contribute to social justice in the work that we do, but also contribute to social justice for all of our staff at Mathematica. Well, you know, it's interesting. And I, I love the fact that we, have known each other for so long and you know growing up in jacksonville you know a small farm town in the midwest and where it it seems so far from here it it <laughs> is uh it, and it brings me back to some some memories i have of growing up in a in a high school i think at the moment you asked am i all right it wasn't, was I all right in the present? It was this flood of memories. And, you know, I remember being in high school with you, and I happened to be a science student, and I, I took a chemistry class. The thing that was memorable about the chemistry class is because my name was W. I sat in the very last seat in the room next to someone whose name was start with a V. <laughs> and the two of us were 
seated next to each other and lab partners. Except this kid hated me. And I don't know that I would say I hated him, but to have somebody on a daily basis joke about being a part of the Ku Klux Klan or challenge me on who I was going to date, who I felt was attractive, but yet had the audacity to cheat off of me on a test. Something that hurt, that memory that I had to try to excel in school, knowing that my chemistry partner claimed to be a part of the Ku Klux Klan. Then I thought more about the class and it was taught by the very esteemed teacher and, and my track coach and who spent years and years training me to a point that, you know, I became a, one of the top runners in the state and points in the country. He took me all over the state. I went to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which he led. He knew me. But he didn't trust me or know me well enough that during our test cycle, we happened to take a test on the chemical elements and memory of what the symbols of different chemical elements were. I scored the highest score in the class by a huge margin. And it took one person who happened to be of light skin to walk up and say he cheated. I was then punished and kicked out from his class because I was the brightest kid in the class. And it took me over 30 years for my life to come in contact with him again in which he saw all the things I had accomplished and that my children then were accomplishing both in sports and academics for him to say, maybe I was wrong. Well, that was 30 years of me questioning myself, wondering why all the good works that I did with this individual could be turned or overturned by one woman or girl with a lie. It's those things that started flooding back to me. And you know, I, I want to, I want to ask being on the other side, did you see those things in our society at that time or in our community or? I don't think I did much. I mean, I certainly heard people express racist views at times, but I I think it was seldom enough that I heard it that I didn't think of it as a notable part of my experience growing up. And I think that both the racism around us and the at least implicit segregation that probably existed in our hometown that I'm almost completely, I was probably almost completely oblivious to, probably made for a different hometown experience. Uh, for us, that when I think about uh, my perspective on our hometown, 
you know, which people should know is a relatively small town in rural Illinois, a farming community, really. You know, I have a very strong sense of belonging to Jacksonville, our hometown, that even today, I've been away from Jacksonville, you know, haven't spent much time there for 40 years. But when I go back, I feel at home. It's a small town. When we were growing up, we rode our bikes everywhere from an early age. We felt connected to all the different institutions in the town. Uh, it's almost like cheering for your home team. You never quite get that out of your system. There's a sense of familiarity there. And Chris, I'm interested in your description of your experience, but I can kind of project a little bit, which is, first of all, you, you spent half your childhood somewhere else before coming to Jacksonville. But given the element of racism and implicit segregation, that I would imagine that kept you from having that same sense of belonging or keeps you from having that same sense of belonging to Jacksonville that I feel. And that's despite things that you already mentioned, that you were a high school sports star in that town, well-recognized for that. You're currently a member of the Sports High School Hall of Fame uh, for our high school. You were a top student at the high school. And, you know, just kind of considering our two experiences, you're probably the more naturally outgoing person uh, <laughs> compared with me. So, so what was the reality for you in terms of how you experienced our hometown growing up? Well, I, it's neat. It's, it's, it's a really funny question because you remember our hometown is divided into Jacksonville and then there's a small subset of Jacksonville that's called South Jacksonville. And South Jacksonville at the time that I moved, um, and understand, I moved to Jacksonville after growing up the first 13 years of my life on Indian reservations. And the paradox here is when you were on an Indian reservation, the Indians are the majority and whites and blacks are minorities. And we're both hated. So in the particular reservations that I lived on, it was quite common to have five or six white families and two or three black families who were really the government workers that helped run the reservation. And white and black, we stayed together. And basically, on any given walk, we could have a group of Indians drive by and yell the word nigger and Washichu. So Washichu is a derogatory term for a white person that's equivalent to a nigger for a black person. So leaving this small enclave where you have whites and blacks as equal and working together to kind of protect each other to Jacksonville was a real eye-opener because my family lived as the only black family in South Jacksonville. Didn't mean anything to us, but it meant a lot to the, the other African-Americans who lived in the community. So uh, my experience was not only was I new to Jacksonville, I was an outsider from the African-American community and 
my speech and my sister's speech and my parents' speech didn't match that of someone from Jacksonville proper. Mm-hmm. So that being said, the thing that's special about Jacksonville is that everybody takes care of each other. And so my family's very friendly. We had friends and we functioned well. My father sat on many town commissions. We were consider, considered middle class, even though we, we, I, I, we made, I think, maybe $36,000 a year. That was middle class in Jacksonville. Yeah. So um, it was by being an athlete, by being a student, that I wanted to belong. I don't know that I left Jacksonville feeling the same way you did. But thankfully, you know, we had our 40th year reunion, and you convinced me for once to go back to the reunion. And it was only in that moment that I captured the same feeling that you had. We had a ball, and everybody loved me. It didn't care that I was black or white, nor did the other African-American students that came back. We were all just Jacksonville graduates. It was a really healing experience, and that included me going back to the home of our coach, who I had had such a painful memory of, and sitting and talking to his wife after hearing that he had passed away in the last year, but discovering that he didn't want harm to me. And maybe all that I had perceived as racist or racism on his part was him just trying to manage something that he didn't know the answer to really healing. And I love Jacksonville. I love the work ethic that we have. I love that we're honesty and integrity. And, you know, we're kind of blue collar workers. We kind of get it done. And I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the, to watch your success because we just work hard. Chris, in surrounding the events in recent weeks, I think we've had different discussions about race than we have in the past. I wondered in that context, what's your earliest memory of racism? So because we live so far from our family, um, I'll tell you, my parents went to Tuskegee Institute, a traditionally black college. I am now a fourth generation college graduate. So education was really, really instilled in us very early. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one caveat that you may, might not know. I am the ancestor of Robert Smalls. So Robert Smalls is a famous slave who captured a Confederate gunboat and put slave families, his family, and floated that gunboat north and turned it over to the Union. Then educated himself, his family, and ended up becoming a Republican state senator. It was that history of education that really has propelled everybody in my family to 
to really push towards advanced degrees. So my, my parents were at Tuskegee. My dad did a master's and the master's was paid for on a grant that basically forced him to go back to an underserved area. It was really intended to get people in agronomy to go back into the deep south and help sharecroppers. Except my father and mother had had enough. And they said, we don't want to go back to the deep south. And as a result, we're given another option. You can go all the way to Montana and live on an Indian reservation and serve your time there. Now, the average person, African-American or not, would not be crazy enough to pack their family up and drive all the way to Montana. But my parents did. And it was living there, and every three years, we would take a trip back to South Carolina. And in taking that trip, we would drive through areas of Tennessee and South Carolina where black-only and white-only bathrooms still existed. So at 2 a.m. in the morning, my father would pull into a gas station to get gas. At age five and age seven, age eight, my sister and I would jump out of the car and say, we have to go to the bathroom. My parents would grab us and say, you can't go to the bathroom here. Go into the field. I said, Mom, why, why, there's a bathroom there. It says men's. I said, honey, it says wives only. So we'd go to the field, get back in the car, and we would then ask, what is happening? Why? We don't do that where we're from, Mom. Well, it's different here. And so for the next month, we would live in this segregated world where we'd go to the black swimming pool, five to eight blocks in the nice neighborhood was the white swimming pool. That was my earliest memory of segregation and racism. What, for you, Paul, what do you think the earliest acknowledgement looking back or for you would be around race, racism? I think the, my earliest observation of it that I can remember is from the, you know, the black and white videos of the protests in the early 1960s, uh, associated with the Selma March, et cetera. And the, the, the kind of, uh, violence was, that was brought to bear on the protesters. And then I think, you know, throughout the sixties, uh, I think the next thing, uh, there were kind of two things after that, that really awoke me to the issues. One is the riots, particularly the riots of 1967 and 1968 and being conscious of those as a spectacle on the television and answering my, and asking my parents what was going on. I often tell a story about a trip that we took around Lake Michigan uh, when I was six years old in 1967 that we took during the time the riots were going on. And 
I have both a clear memory and a detailed diary of that trip because my mother uh, maintained a diary uh, of the trip. And so, in fact, it's sitting on the, on the desk near me. And so I can go back and I can look at her thoughts as somebody who was a civil rights, who was active in the civil rights movement herself, as was my father. But I also have my own memory. And the reason is because uh, I was very focused on the end of the trip coming down to Milwaukee. For some reason, I wanted, I was interested in going into a big city. And they had riots uh, in the days leading up to when we were supposed to arrive. And I remember coming down the interstate uh, as we as we would come down into where you would typically enter the city. And there were state police cars stretched across the interstate because the city had been closed down. The riots were violent enough and had followed on riots in Detroit that they wanted to kind of shut everything down to avoid the escalation of violence. So that nobody was let in the city and nobody was let out of the city uh, for 24 hours. And it just happened to be the 24 hours we were going to arrive. Uh, and so the police directed us to a hotel we could use as a substitute for staying in Milwaukee. Uh, and that was the last part of the trip. And we basically skipped that part of the trip. Uh, the day after when they opened the city, we could drive through the city. I was interested in seeing the old baseball stadium. Milwaukee didn't have a baseball team at that time, but they still had a stadium. And then we drove back to Jacksonville. And so that set of riots that got me conscious and then the 1968 riots associated with Martin Luther King's assassination. And of course, all the discussions around Martin Luther King's assassination as well. I was fortunate to have uh, parents that were sensitive to the issues that were the their day's version of anti-racist that felt it was uh, necessary to be proactive in being anti-racist. We're not, and my mother in particular was not afraid to speak out about it as a high school history teacher herself. So that's my memory, uh, really. And I feel fortunate that I had my parents to teach me what the issues were uh, even though I might not have been uh, savvy enough to recognize it in everyday life and what it meant. I want to relate. Six years ago, my daughter did a research summer in Ghana. And so I flew my son and I to Ghana and we... We had the most amazing, amazing time. But the part that's relevant here is we had the opportunity to visit the slave castles in Ghana. And as you walk through these dungeons where the slaves, hardy when they were captured, spent three months walking to the slave camps, and then another three months buried under these dungeons of these slave camps, living in excrement and, you know, ultimately being forced for, through the, the door of no return. And seeing that that door of no return was, was about a foot and a half wide and that even the largest slave, when starved for now six months, could fit through this space. It brought home 
just the lack of knowing as an African-American where your home is. Where do I belong? I was transplanted here. And then life started again. And so I, I want to share that as, as, you know, my heart found part of me by being in Ghana and being in this slave castle because I didn't have that. African-American kid growing up on an Indian reservation, then growing up in Jacksonville, I don't speak for every African-American, but I know that a part of our pain is that where's our home? Where are we welcomed? Where are we loved? And when from birth, you're gifted into this society that doesn't really, and I'm going to speak harshly here, doesn't want you. And every day you defy the odds and say, you know what? I'm going to get up and I'm going to try to make a contribution. I'm not going to give up. So you get through life and you keep stuffing it down and you keep fighting and battling, wanting to get to the next day. And then suddenly the world stops when all the things that you thought were true, but people told you weren't true. All the things that you wanted to deny because you had to not be depressed. You had to be happy and you had to smile and you have to be positive or else you're not going to get the job. You're not going to be accepted in the school. You're not going to have friends. What we witnessed with Mr. Floyd was life is not valued the same for each of us. They didn't want me from birth. And oh my God, I'm watching this in real time. They still don't want me and they're willing to take my life. That, that's what will make any African-American feel like they are nothing. It hurts so deeply that even with all my education, I could be Mr. Floyd next. I could do the wrong thing. I could cease to exist because someone has more power than me. That's why I'm not okay. But that's why I'm so thankful that I have you as a friend and someone who cares enough about me. That in my most painful moments, you will say, are you okay, Chris? And I didn't say the best part of your text. The best part of your text 
was, I'm here for you. I got you. Paul, I love you, and I am so thankful that your parents raised you. I'm so proud that you befriended me. I'm so proud and thankful that I have this forum that I never dreamt I could have with you in this moment to just say, I'm not okay. Chris, I'm honored to be having this conversation with you. I love you. I admire you. I don't admire many people, but I admire you. And you're probably the most determined person that I've ever met. I know, you know, so much is informed by knowing what your background is, where you come from, uh, and understanding what it took to drive the success that you drove to create a wonderful life for yourself. And I'm honored that you're willing to have me as your friend uh, and willing to share this bond of having come from the same hometown and enjoying each other's company throughout our lives. I think your description of your reaction and your feeling of vulnerability as a black American is exactly why I say black lives matter. It's not a political statement. It's a human statement. It's a statement that I have to say because it says at the same time, Chris's life matters. It's that simple. And it turns out, based on the evidence of recent weeks, it's important that we say that. And so that's why I've been saying it uh, and why I'll continue to say it. Because the, the words say it all. Black lives aren't, don't just matter, they're precious. And I don't ever, or I should say, my hope for you would be to lessen that feeling and to increase your feeling of belonging. Uh, I'm glad, I love hearing a story about the traveling to Ghana and discovering that connection. And I'll also connect it to your story about going back to Jacksonville to our high school reunion. Because you talked about how happy it made you feel, the, the welcome that you received and the way it made you feel at the time. And I saw that clearly uh, at the event. And I was thankful. And I felt vindicated for dragging you back. <laughs> <laughs> It was amazing. And it's amazing to discover that there really is not a lot of difference at the end of the day. We are black, we are white, we are Asian, but we eat, we work, we nurture, we love. Those are the qualities that bind us and As we were laughing and uh, running around, everybody taking pictures at our reunion, you know, our junior high group, our elementary school group, our high school group, 
all the walls fell down. And that was really, really a great thing that I didn't die knowing that there was a whole level of resentment that I didn't have to have. There was a lot of forgiveness that I actually could access. And, you know, I guess that, that brings me to, you know, what do we do to actually make this better? And I'll share a, something that's happened in the past week. And uh, it was very interesting that last Thursday I was invited to the home of one of my uh, friends. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. I did surgery on my most famous patient, Andrew Wyeth. And that surgery was, I think, 20 years ago. Andrew Wyeth is one of the most famous painters in, in this country, and if not the world. But Andrew Wyeth grew up painting as a young child, and because he didn't go to school, the only kid in his community that he could be friends with was an African-American named Dudu. So Dudu was his name. And years later, Andrew Wyeth befriended me as a surrogate friend, as if I was Dudu. It's funny that he named the African-American kid Dudu, but he treated me like a king. Andrew Wyeth would take me into his house, invite me to parties, and invite, introduce me to some of the wealthiest people in the world. Andrew Wyeth passed away years ago, but the network of friends still impacts me to this day. And so one of his wealthy friends called me and said, can you come over? I'm having some friends over last Thursday. So go to the house. They live on a gorgeous estate that is sprawling. We get lost just driving on the property, the carriage house, pool house, the main house. As we drive up to the house, there are eight other gentlemen who have not met, and turns out they are of the same ilk as my friend. So here I am, the only African-American. We're outside in COVID times, having a catered meal, staying six feet away from each other, talking about vineyards and all these things that I've never realized experienced in my life. But there was one individual who kept sharing what I would call uncomfortable things. Oh my God, he said, Antifa's gonna take over the world. Everybody would put their head down and start talking and act like they didn't hear. So we now have dinner. And he continues as we're sitting around this big table outside with the maid who's African-American serving us. And he then says, if we don't stop them from tearing down all the monuments, Christianity is going to be overthrown. 
I'm now biting my tongue. Everybody else is now chatting even more intently because <laughs> finally he says, I was raised by two mothers. I had a black mother and a white mother. My white mother traveled the world. She was busy. My black mother, she raised me and I loved her. I couldn't take it anymore. I looked at the gentleman and said, look, I don't think that you actually are capturing the essence of the moment. No one cares about statues as much as they do about the life of George Floyd. I think that we should be talking about that rather than statues. Lo and behold, the seven other people around the table suddenly lit up and there was a full volley of, I'm Jewish and I disagree with what you said. It was an hour and a half later that I wasn't sure whether I had created the worst dinner party or the best dinner party because everybody was sharing from their heart their view of what had happened. It was at the moment that the host said, this is so much fun. We need to do this again. I want to invite friends. We're going to put up a tent. The resolution to this issue is we have to have dialogue. Dialogue. And all of a sudden I realized, despite all the difference of opinion of these wealthy individuals, many of them who actually supported me in my view, to my surprise, we're simply trying to understand from their perspective what this was all about. So I share that little story because I'd like to ask you, how do you think we can make this better? And what should we be doing? Yeah, well, I think you're getting at it, which is we need to have these conversations more and uh, you know, I think one of the beautiful things about your story and uh, it's consistent with what I've experienced over the years, Chris, is that you've got a forgiving soul. So you're not asking for somebody to be perfect when you're asking people how they feel. You're not putting them to a test. You actually want to hear how they feel and what makes them tick. And and I think that's the spirit we have to bring to these conversations is a spirit of curiosity and wanting to understand and understanding that people are going to make mistakes in those conversations. And, you know, the hope is that there's somebody of your patience <laughs> to put them back on the, the more productive path in those discussions. And so I hope we can find ways to promote that. I think one thing I should say too, is that, that you didn't mention is, Andrew Wyeth has painted you, has painted a portrait of you. Oh. Uh, and people don't have a visual of it, but uh, he painted you wearing your cowboy hat, oh, <laughs> which is one of my favorite pictures, uh, showing your cowboy roots. That, that, was, that was amazing because I had the, the amazing experience of spending five or six weekends in a row 
sitting in front of Andrew Wyeth and having him share all the life stories and the times he's painted presidents and in the same chair that I was sitting in. And it was, it was so special when he turned around and showed me a painting of myself. But I think that what Andrew Wyeth had a gift and that he could see behind or deeper than the surface or who we were or who he wanted to be. So before he started painting, he said, how would you like to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered as a doctor? And I, that was the last thing that I want to be remembered. Being a doctor is a profession. Being a cowboy is my heart. I love my boots. I love my hat. I feel lost without them. And when I asked if I could be painted in my hat and boots, I think he expected it. So um, it, it was a great experience. And uh, thank you for acknowledging that. Chris, I wanted to make uh, another point and then maybe move to a final question. You talked about kind of what can we do? And I was talking about the ways in which we need to communicate. And I think one of the things that has gotten, gotten in a way the communication is that everything around race in the U.S. has such a political projection on it. And so people are intimidated into think, into feeling like, well, if I express human sympathy of this sort, people will project other political views on me. And I think we have to find a way not to be intimidated in that way. That's why I say it's important to say Black Lives Matter rather than worry about, well, if I say Black Lives Matter, what else will somebody conclude about me? Right. No, I say it because Black Lives really matter and that we have to say it because there's too much evidence that too many people think Black Lives don't matter in just the way we talked about before. So it's getting beyond the political divide, separating it off and making sure we continue to see it as a human issue as we're connecting personally to people and supporting them. I agree a hundred percent. And, you know, I'm going to make a statement that many people won't, may not agree with, but I'm going to preface it with growing up and saying to people, I think this is racist, or I think there's racial bias here. And people say, oh, racism, no, it, it, that doesn't exist, not in our community. What I think I'm going to be thankful for is the willingness for the segment of our society who has hostility and hatred to be uncovered and like the band-aid was ripped off and they said, well, no, no, we've always been here. We hate you. Look, we're going to demonstrate that. For this part, I just say thank you for America being who you are because you have set the stage for this moment. 
So there's no denying that racism exists. There's a full frontal view of who you are, how painful, how hateful, and just what you will do to human existence. Now that we see you, what are we going to do? Not, polit not politics. This is human life we're talking about. Is it okay for one human to take the life of another if they are of different color? If you say yes, well, at least you're honest, and now we can have a dialogue. But I think yeah. for most of us, thank God, thank God most of us say, mm-mm, I don't think so. Right. And that's what I'm so thankful for. White, black, Asian, Jewish. I think we as a society all believe that human life of any race is equal. Let's start a new dialogue. Absolutely. And I think the, the power of the video evidence has really driven what you said. We see people in ways that they weren't seen in the past uh, in terms of their intent. Disturbing videos uh, of this. And yet one glimmer of one positive glimmer in this is in the reaction, the attendance at the protests. Very diverse yes. participants in the protests, all ages, all races, not to be intimidated, even when violence has been brought to bear on them, that those protests went on and they were largely peaceful, even when oftentimes when there was violence, it was violence being brought to bear by the authorities, to people who are largely protesting peacefully. And so I think, in fact, that kind of the, the kind of combination of people being revealed in the way that you said by the video evidence combined with what we see in terms of allies uh, to fight back uh, in the interest of racial justice is what makes this a different moment. And what will give this moment a life that goes beyond just a moment, that it'll be an inflection point to begin to bend our existence toward justice. At least that's what I hope. Thanks to our guests, Chris Williams and Paul Decker, for coming on the show today. And thank you for listening to another episode of On the Evidence, the Mathematica podcast. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, basically wherever you can find podcasts. Another way you can keep up with the show, as well as other interesting work from Mathematica, is by following us on Twitter. I'm at JB Wogan. Mathematica is at Mathematica Now.